welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. I'm your host, Monica Marquez. When you hear the terms privilege or white privilege, what comes to mind for you? Do you immediately think of white people and attach the stigma of racism with it? If you answered yes, or your answer leaned towards yes, then you, my friend, need to pause and disrupt your thinking. Because the irony is that you yourself just exhibited negative unconscious biased behaviors. But don't beat yourself up. We all do this to some extent. It's human nature. The key is to make the choice to change. In today's episode, Aubrey Blanche, Global Head of Equitable Design and Impact at CultureAmp, discusses and shares how we should all be using our individual privileges to help other marginalized groups, especially in this current awakened environment of racial and economic inequities. Aubrey is also known as the math path, math nerd plus empath, and is a startup investor and advisor. Through all her work, she seeks to question, reimagine, and redesign the systems and practices that surround us to ensure that all people can access equitable opportunities and build a better world. Aubrey is trained in social scientific methods and grounded in the fundamental dignity and value of every person. Her professional expertise covers a broad range of equitable enterprise operations from talent lifecycle programs and accessible product development to event design and communications and media. She is the inventor of the balanced teams approach to building proportional representation and a culture of belonging in the workplace, as well as the balanced teams diversity assessment in the Atlassian team playbook. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Aubrey. Welcome, Aubrey. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We're so excited to have you um, on the show so that you can share with everybody your uh, insights, your pearls of wisdom, and to be completely unapologetically authentic as you always are. Um, So let's dive right in. Tell us your story um, and what's driven you all your life. My story. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, My story is a quite strange one, I think, for most people's lives. So if there's anything that's driven me, I think there's two sort of fundamental things. The first is that I am a voracious learner. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just like crave to know things and know why things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I learned to read when I was three years old, uh, partially because I was sure my dad was tricking me about how reading worked. (laughs) It turns out he was not. Right. Um, But I just, Mm -hmm. I was like, you're a trickster. I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the second is really, um, going back and like listening to, to stories about me as I was a kid is that I always had this like fundamental belief that things should be fair mm-hmm. and not just that they should be fair, but that the idea that you didn't fix it when it wasn't, um, mm-hmm. wasn't right. So my dad told me the story the first time actually in the middle of a speech at my wedding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he said there was one time, you know, I ran into the room and, um, 
and I had just read something that was bad in the world. I don't know. I was known for reading like sociology texts when I was like seven <laughs> because I was, a, I was a very bookish kid. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, dad, this thing is happening. And, and he says, well, Ob, so that's not fair. And he says, well, Ob, the world's not fair. And I just got angry and I like stomped out of the room and he followed me and he was like, why are you so mad? And I said, what a lazy thing to say. Mm. And when he told me that story, I was like, oh my goodness, I've always been this like precocious, very stubborn, like justice oriented (laughs) human. Like I thought this was a new thing Mm -hmm. Um, or at least recently new. And so I think those things for me kind of explain the rest of my journey is that I've constantly wanted to know why and that I've constantly wanted to understand how we can make the world better, which I think makes it obvious that I I personally want to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what I focus on now. But to talk about my identity and like the the quick hit version is that I was born into um, a Mexican American family, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of a statistic to be honest. So there's a lot of interfamily trauma, um, mm-hmm. addiction, low income, just a lot of challenges mm-hmm. uh, for the folks in my biological family. And I was over the course of a very you know complicated set of early years. When I was about three, I was adopted mm-hmm. by, into a mostly white family. Mm. Um, so my um, who I consider my sort of real parents, um, mm-hmm. incredible people. But sort of um, my adoptive mother, well, she's second gen American. You know, her family's white. Um, mm-hmm. My adoptive dad is white passing, but he is actually Choctaw. Um, mm. So he's indigenous. And I was raised by those folks, very sort of working class values, share what you have, be incredibly grateful, Mm -hmm. do what you can, um, and be mindful that many other people don't have what you have. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you have something, work hard. Um, because mm-hmm. you've taken a seat from someone who may also deserve it, but didn't get it, right? right. right? And that's uh, out of respect mm-hmm. uh, for those folks. And, and those are the attitudes I sort of always thought were universal. Um, on top of that, my mom was an entrepreneur. She ran her own business. My dad is a corporate general counsel, but his attitude was like, I don't negotiate with your mother. Like I go to court and litigate. I don't negotiate with your mother. <laughs> he was the one that picked me up from daycare. So I grew up and, you know, when I was, uh, I was always really, really good at math and science in school. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the boys used to tease me. And uh, my dad one day just looked at me and he said, Aubrey, you know, you're not as good as the boys at math and science. And that's why you're, they're teasing you. And I just went, and he said, you're much better than they are. And the only way they can beat you is if you quit. <laughs> And so I grew up in this like very feminist household that like no one Mm -hmm. would have said that word ever. Right. (laughs) Um, But it was just this attitude where like, I think it was especially my dad who Mm -hmm. talked about my mother in a way that like clearly communicated respect and he thought she was incredibly smart and capable, which she is. Mm -hmm. She's like the best human on planet earth, if you ask me. (laughs) Um, And then also we grew up in a really like post-racial household. So we Mm -hmm. celebrated the fact that like I was Mexican, even though... My parents didn't really know what that meant or like how to give me culture, but right. they made me feel like that was a good thing and I could talk about it and I could be proud of it. You know, they didn't want to disconnect me from my heritage. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom always talked about being Irish and Belgian and my dad, it was French and, you know, Native American. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's how the rest of the world worked. And so it was when I got to college and I figured out that like no one, <laughs> there was a hierarchy that like my parents didn't tell me about. Right. I think that's when I started getting pissed off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you can kind of this, see the seeds of what I do today. Right. Um, but it all started there. 
So that is a beautiful story. And I think uh, it shows a lot of the um, the lessons of, you know, like you said, you, you didn't know. So there were no barriers or nothing to hold you back. So I think that's beautiful, which I think really leads to, you know, you've taken a very unconventional path in your career. Um, and what has helped you take those chances? Like, because there was, you took some of these chances with no fear, jumping into different roles, um, different organizations, where in some cases, women, unfortunately, and research shows where they may not take an opportunity because they don't feel ready for it. But you, you do quite the opposite where you just, what, you just take the chance, what helps you yeah. Um, so I think there was like two big phases in my career and mm-hmm. I don't want to, I'm so grateful for you saying that and also don't want to take too much credit for the courageousness in some instances. Mm-hmm. I think um, I am an incredibly idealistic person and a lot of the chances that I've taken were probably more naivete than courage. Mm. Um, and so what I mean by that is I think the way that my parents raised me, and I think this is part of, you know, being a, a woman of color who is acculturated in many ways to being white, mm-hmm. um, I was taught I could do anything. Like my, you know, my parents gave me that. And so partially it never occurred to me that I couldn't mm-hmm. do something. Yes. <laughs> And so a a lot of that. So I, you know, I went to undergrad. Um, I started as a vocal performance major, which is like a weird fact. Um, Seriously? I'm sorry. I have to pause. I have the same background. So that's amazing. I'm (laughs) going to go. Yeah. So I, yeah, I started as a vocal performance major, realized that wasn't like the right career path for me. I Mm -hmm. wanted it to be this, this joyful thing, but I frankly just wasn't good enough to have a career in it compared to some of the incredible people who do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I switched to journalism because I always was a good writer mm-hmm. and it seemed like a good career where I could just learn stuff all the time. Like the idea that you get paid to just learn things and write it down mm-hmm. uh, appealed. <laughs> and, uh, and so I switched to journalism. I ended up studying political science by accident, um, which is because I was uh, – getting my history credits done. And Mm -hmm. uh, I was writing, I kept taking classes with one professor, um, an Israeli guy who had come over from Tel Aviv and it was Middle Eastern history. And he said, I need you to get out of my class. You're writing political science papers, go across the street to this building and find someone to advise you because you don't actually like history. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, and he passed me. He ended up being my advisor for the rest (laughs) Uh of uni. But um, and so I went over to the political science department, ended up declaring a major um, in that because the systems analysis really appealed to me. I didn't know what social science was really mm-hmm. at that moment. And I didn't know political science was even a set of words you could put together. Mm-hmm. Um, I just walked around until, um, until someone kind of said, yeah, I'll advise you. <laughs> what are you trying to do? <laughs> um, so I think that was for me is, is I studied social science because it mapped done to the way I think about problems and my brain worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought that the only thing I could do because I liked books was go be an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I was really obsessed with this concept that I learned in my classes about the fact that when uh, the military uses uh, mercenaries or private military contractors, mm-hmm. there's greater collateral damage. So that means more civilians die in conflict than if they're using uniform military. Mm-hmm. And I just said, well, that's really bad. I'm going to go study that and figure out why that happened so that maybe we can stop um, Mm -hmm. innocent people dying in conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Because, you know, I'm like 18 and I just (laughs) was like, I can fix this. Uh Um, Which goes back to this idea of like, it never occurred to me that I couldn't do it. 
Right. Um, you know, I went into academia and partially I realized that like working alone wasn't satisfying to me and I wanted to have more direct impact. The other fact is like Stanford is really sexist and racist. Um, mm. Both, you know, I ran into some professors who were actively abusive, just to mm-hmm. be really honest, but mm-hmm. the majority of them weren't. The majority of them, it was just sort of very subtle institutional racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... Stanford was really where I think I solidified my identity as a Latina woman mm-hmm. um, for a very specific reason. So I'm white passing, as you can see, but folks on the podcast might not. You know, mm-hmm. I get sunburns and have green eyes. <laughs> um, and and so I had dealt with, you know, kids teasing me in school, telling me, oh, you're the Mexican. That's why you should sharpen the pencils for the group or, mm. you know, because Mexicans do the service jobs. And I now remember, you know, when I found out Catherine Zeta-Jones was Welsh, because mm-hmm. like the Mask of Zora was like the only Latina I'd ever seen in media, <laughs> I like bawled for right. days. Mm-hmm. And now I like understand why those things happened. But I got put in a program at Stanford for um, basically black and brown students. Mm. Um, it was through the NSF trying to keep us in academia because we have such high attrition rates. And as I was spending time with those students... I was hearing stories from them and I started to realize that my individual stories were not just individual stories. Mm. I had assumed that what had happened to me was just an Aubrey thing, not a, like I didn't have a concept of race and racism in the way I probably should have or could have. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of my particular life path, it it didn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when I was like, oh shit, this is a systemic problem. Mm-hmm. this isn't about me like and I'm on the easy like I, I got racism on easy mode <laughs> and it still didn't work for it's me it's like racism light okay right mm-hmm. and and then you know like listening to these stories of you know my black colleagues and the, the shit that they deal with on a daily basis is just horrifying mm-hmm. and so I ended up dropping out of Stanford partially for personal reasons, partially because I just didn't feel like I could possibly ever be successful mm-hmm. um, in that department as a woman of color, mm-hmm. despite having a couple of, frankly, like white men who were incredible champions to me and are still people who, who support me and open doors for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, I just needed a job and I was in the Bay Area, so I went into the tech industry. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I was like, someone pay me money so I can pay my rent. And for some reason, I didn't know that the tech industry was so unbelievably um, like mediocre in terms of its hiring standards, such that mm-hmm. it only hires a certain demographic of people. And when I got there, I was like, y'all seem really nice, but why do you match? Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of creepy. We're in <laughs> California. Like, yeah. And everybody's like, we're a meritocracy. And that sort of is, is, gets into this next phase where I just... Yeah, I was like, I'm a social scientist. I run experiments like for a living. Let me show you how like sexist this process is. And mm-hmm. then I would produce data. And luckily I landed at a company where there was some senior leaders who said, cool, yeah. I said, hey, can I do this for a job? Here's a proposal, here's a plan, mm-hmm. here's the experiments I'm going to run. And they said, yes, um, which wouldn't have happened everywhere. Yeah, and that amazing. was kind of yes. mm-hmm. off to the races. Now that's what I do all day, every day. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And so you touched a little bit about uh, your experiences at Stanford um, and then in the tech industry and just speaking from your experience around sometimes, I guess, the the subtle microaggressions or the micro insults that you found yourself um, and later when you could put a, a name with the face, right, for lack of a better term, or when you can name it, um, I guess share with our listeners how, you know, because I'm sure many of our listeners um, 
struggle with this every day, face them every day. Um, how do you address them? How do you address them and keep cool? Yeah. So I think, I think part of it is like, I've spent a lot of time in therapy, like focusing on my own emotional management. So Mm -hmm. like, I just want to call out that a lot of the things that have gotten me to the point where like, I can easily manage the situations come from a situation of economic privilege Mm -hmm. um, in that I could afford, uh, you know, people Mm -hmm. to help me. But I think for me, I have, I always have had the ability to think about the long term. Mm-hmm. And so to me, like the motivating thing where how can I be patient and compassionate with someone when they're like being racist and microaggressive or sexist or ableist or, you know, homophobic or whatever mm-hmm. is if I blow up at this person, I have lost my chance to change them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's personally motivating. I think one of the things that's interesting is because of what I look like, uh, it happens less now given like what I do. Mm-hmm. Like people are like, oh, I know you're brown and queer. Um, But a lot of times in the beginning of my career and sort of in college, it was actually that people were saying racist things in front of me and not to me, Mm -hmm. right? Because people assumed that I was a part of the in-group. And, you know, go back 10 years, I also presented much straighter than I do now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's an important thing is that I often observed microaggressions. I didn't have them targeted at me. Mm, Um, For me, when I'm interrupting, uh, my first thing is like, you know, there's the, do you know what I mean? Uh, Mm -hmm. My progression, my tactic is is just to say, no, what do you mean? (laughs) And like Mm -hmm. make people get really explicit because, and then when they do, I kind of say, hey, maybe we should unpack like why you don't feel comfortable saying that explicitly. Like, why do you feel comfortable implying it, but not saying it? Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes people really uncomfortable Um, but I often say, Hey, that discomfort you're feeling is how I feel as a person of color listening to that. Mm. Right. So I try to bring it back, um, to show empathy to be like, we do have the same feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, and then often people will say, Oh, but I didn't mean it. And I go, yes, but the insurance company doesn't care if you didn't mean it. If you hit another car, Mm -hmm. I am the other car. Like, I, I, can, I can forgive you. I understand that you didn't mean it, but you are ultimately responsible for what you chose to do. And, 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 and I try to do that in a way that shows that it's like, I'm not going to cancel you because you fucked up once because the fact is I have said stupid ways of shit in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the story I tell is when I moved to Chicago, I grew up in a small town in Northern Michigan. Mm-hmm. It actually came out of my mouth. Oh my God, there are multiple types of Asian food. right which sounds you know really stupid except if you grew up with only one tiny american chinese restaurant in your town Mm -hmm. like it never occurred to you that there were other options so i try to connect back to my journey to to find compassion but also remember that most people are fundamentally good and have been very very poorly taught Mm -hmm. and so do it in private Mm-hmm. challenge it directly mm-hmm. and require that people don't get off on good intentions because we know what the mm. word to hell is paved with. Yes. Um, and, and so I think that's it. But I also just want to say to anyone listening, like it is a choice to engage. So I don't want anyone to think that they have a moral or ethical responsibility to correct microaggressions if they don't feel safe mm-hmm. or they don't feel that they have personal capacity to do it. That's right. not a requirement on you. That's on folks like me who have a lot of privilege across a lot of vectors who therefore have space to do the work, I mm-hmm. think. 
That's that's exceptional. And, and I do agree with you that there are some responsibilities when you do come from or have some sort of privilege that either you've earned or that is just been given to you, given to you because of the color of your skin or who you are or just what you've been born with. So um, I, I totally support you in that, you know, that if you don't feel comfortable, by all means, um, maybe rely on an ally or somebody who can, who can step in for you and, and help you sort that out. Um, just thinking about the current um, environment right now, I mean, we're dealing with a pandemic around uh, coronavirus and um, companies are having to make really difficult decisions very quickly. And you are in a leadership role, um, you know, focusing on um, equity, diversity, belonging. Um, and that kind of like turns your role upside down, especially when you're trying to create a sense of belonging in an environment, but now it's become virtual. Um, what has helped you navigate some of these decisions that you're having to make on the fly? Um, and, you know, what, what recommendation would you give to our listeners as they too are being faced with decisions that are just um, unexpected? Yeah. Um, so it turns out like one, I was never really properly trained for this job because I don't know what training would look like, you know, to build <laughs> equitable systems and, and, and diversity. But mm -hmm. the fact is like none of us were trained to deal with a global pandemic, like inside capitalism. Right. And so I would say first, like be compassionate to everyone that we are all doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. Um, and we don't always know what else is going on in the background. But mm -hmm. I think what's helped me and what I'm really grateful for, so I work at CultureAmp and what I've seen, and the reason I took the job at CultureAmp, it turns out I have no buyer's remorse. Um, mm -hmm. you know, your values and your ethics are really tested in these times, is that we all have the same values around human first mm -hmm. and, and thinking about people. So honestly, in some ways, this is the same thing as what I do every day, which is consider who's most likely to be on the margin and mm -hmm. how do we support them first? So in this case, you know, we're thinking about first, especially like our working parents, colleagues mm -hmm. who suddenly are having, you know, their schools closed and suddenly they don't know what to do. We're saying, what can we put in place to make that easier for people mm -hmm. who have caregiving duties? Um, especially as we go into illness, that might be a partner, it might be a parent. Mm -hmm. Folks are probably under more stress. I know that uh, I am a millennial. My parents are boomers. Mm -hmm. I love my dad. He's golfing today and it's causing me so much stress. Um, <laughs> and, but a lot of my peers are having the same thing where they're very worried about their parents. Either they're locked down or they're not, but they're, our, you know, our parents are older and mm -hmm. so we're concerned for their welfare. So... Uh, there's first, like, think about operational problems. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, we went mandatory work from home, both to protect our employees and also the community. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, you know, we had a lot of our employees saying, oh, let's go work from a coffee shop. And I had to send a thing and I say, please don't do that. Like, mm -hmm. you might be okay, but there are immunosuppressed and older folks in our community who won't be okay if you're a vector. Mm -hmm. Like, consider smaller groups in non-public spaces. Mm -hmm. um, but I love that you're collaborating and connecting. Mm -hmm. um, so there's things like that where how do we constantly think of who's going to be the worst impacted and then think about what we can do to help. It's not always huge. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, it's, I have a rule. No one can come to my house on public transport, but I will come pick you up. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. please don't do that. Please don't be a vector in the community. But also I know some of you don't have cars. I will 
help you with that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that principle of design for the margin works in this time too. I think um, companies, uh, Indeed is a really a company I really respect. Um, they went mandatory work from home quicker than other companies. Mm-hmm. But something they did is they're still paying, uh, partially paying their like janitorial and food service vendors mm, right. because they understand they want to protect those workers from layoffs as much as they can. Mm-hmm. And so even though right, most of their employees are like full-time W-2 right. benefits and all of that, that can just jump on a laptop and work from mm-hmm. home. The fact that the corporate leadership was like, wait, and we've thought about the second order economic effects and the security and you know finances of these other people. Mm-hmm. I respect that. I'm kind of in awe of it. Like, so I think that's it. What do we do? We get mm-hmm. really human and we kind of say, fuck the profits for mm-hmm. a minute. Um, right. Yeah, I just don't think it's particularly defensible mm-hmm. um, that people are saying, oh, I'm not going to hit my sales numbers. Well, yes, yeah, still keep running your business, but perhaps like lower your sales projections um, right. and think about like keeping your people well. Um, and then in, as far as sort of inculcating a sense of belonging, I think as much as it's very scary and, you know, this is the greatest uh like remote work experiment in human history. Right. Like that's kind of fun. The social yes. scientists and me like, this is an opportunity. But what I'm seeing among my colleagues is like how people are reaching out and like supporting each other and checking in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what belonging is about. Like you don't need to be in the same physical space. It's about being seen mm-hmm. and then being valued for what other people see. Mm-hmm. And so you know, like we had a, a leadership strategy call yesterday and one of my colleagues, like her kid was bouncing around the room behind her and she's like, oh my God. And we're like, no, 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 don't do that. It's bringing us joy. Right. Like <laughs> have joy that your family is like happy and healthy. Don't worry about the fact that like we had to take a 30 step break on the call right. or, you know, my dog goes nuts or, or things like that. So I think there's that, you know, uh, we had a, one of our sales groups at work uh, they all just got on a co-Zoom this morning for two hours and mm-hmm. had work time, but the Zoom was just open so they could chat like right. they would in the office. <laughs> um, that's brilliant, yes. Yeah, it, it's tiny, right? Like we mm-hmm. have this software, but that's the kind of stuff that builds belonging. Um, uh, another sweet thing that, uh, you know, uh, an engineering manager I know just sent little coffee mugs to everyone <laughs> on their team that have like mm-hmm. little silly engineering sayings on them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, well now we all have similar mugs. Like we used to have them in the office, but since we don't have the kitchen, we all have like our coronavirus right. work from home mug. But Virtual it's a thing coffee chat, shares. yes. Yeah. So I think it's like, what should we do to keep belonging going? Be human, check in on people, take five to 10 minutes at the beginning of a meeting to have no work time and just say, how are you? Um mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's really important is to be really thoughtful right now that there's a lot of anti-Asian racism specifically happening Mm -hmm. Um, and to be really thoughtful for your colleagues and community members who are Asian who may be experiencing a lot of stigma. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a friend whose mom is afraid to clear her throat in public. Mm. Right. And so if you can do anything to proactively sort of when people are expressing those attitudes, make it really clear that they're not acceptable. Mm I think that this is a beautiful opportunity to, to like be an ally in small ways that, that makes such a big difference. That is admirable advice. And, and I really do think that um, what you are sharing with people, and it's the small things, exactly what you pointed out. It's the absolute small things. Um, shifting gears a little bit and given, you know, your background in just kind of like the talent life cycle, performance reviews, all these things, 
the world of work has turned upside down and it's going to be kind of this virtual, right? Like if we're working from home, all of those crazy things. And you and I both know in, in, in our work history of women struggling sometimes in um, whether it's the systemic bias or promotion processes or specifically women of color where sometimes um, there's this level of invisibility or just these nuances that they struggle with. Um, how, what kind of advice would you give women in terms of, okay, now you're working from home virtually and if you've already struggled with um, making sure that you're heard or that you're being seen or that you have the visibility that you need, um, how would you combat that? What would you advise them? Yeah, so I think um, this is general remote work tips that I think we should all use, which is become really aggressive about documentation. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be thoughtful that like this advice sucks. This is like how to cope with mm -hmm. systemic bias. Like right. I wish the world were different. So I want to acknowledge like this is abjectly unfair right. that you might have to do this. But I think become more um, intentional about communication, documentation, and sharing. This is good when you're, when you're not co-located. But I think what it does is like create artifacts of your work. Ask mm -hmm. for feedback consistently. So like it's something I've done. I realize now is a coping skill, but at the time I don't think I developed it consciously that way where every time I would finish a project with someone, I would ask them for written feedback. Mm -hmm. So that if someone came back and like trashed a project, I'd be like, well, here's three important people who said really great things about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that's part of it is to do that. I think women on average are also socialized to communicate more effectively. So you're also really well positioned to do it. Mm -hmm. And then once you've done it, go ask for a raise because you're, you're rocking it. Um, right. So, but I think that's part of it. I think there's also uh, an aspect of like, butt in, invite yourself to things. Um, mm -hmm. This is something I have been known to add myself to calendar invites and just show up to meetings that I think I should be in. And I usually am not too annoying in like the first one of those, but mm -hmm. I, 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 and this comes from this belief I have that we as underrepresented or underestimated people mm -hmm. have to learn how to move through the white space. Like mm -hmm. the structures of corporate were designed to keep us out so we can continue running into the wall all we want, but it's just going to give us like a sore shoulder. Mm -hmm. Like, move into the white space in organizations. What mm -hmm. would happen if you brought up the mantra, but they didn't say I couldn't? Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's the definition of my whole career is like no one said I couldn't do this, so I just tried it. Um, and sometimes people are like, you weirdo, go away. And sometimes people are like, oh, that's super interesting. Sure, you can have this <laughs> job you just made up on the fly. Right. Um, and so I think this is a time where no one really knows what the rules are, decide mm -hmm. what the rules are, tell people what the rules are, and then dare them to challenge you that you're wrong. Mm. I, I love that. I absolutely love that. Of, of, I like the idea of inviting yourself instead of ask, asking for permission, right? It's, it's if you feel like there's something that you bring or add value and you want to add the value, just bring it. I love it. Yeah. And I think there's power in, I say like going on the offensive, but so mm -hmm. if you sort of play your hand first, it's up to other people to tell you no, but they now have to construct a case, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're like, well, why should you do that? You know, when I say to someone, I say, well, what's the data say that I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. Right? Like you're doing the challenge. So you need to now come up with a case that I am incorrect. And right. I don't put things forward if I haven't researched them. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm not just making stuff up. Um, and so I think there's that is that you kind of claim the top of the hill and have to defend it as opposed to charge the hill. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, military strategist, I, I think in those terms, <laughs> but, but I think that's it, which is like, 
define the terms of the engagement for yourself because the fact is the ones that are defined are going to keep you down because they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Fuck those ones. And so I guess thinking about, you know, as you said, you feel like this is probably was ingrained at you is that you, um, there's a level of, you know, just thinking about it being a bit naive and that it's, and it's not naive. It's what you've been taught is that you could do anything that you wanted. So I think, um, you know, what I, when I'm dealing with coaching, whether it's young women, uh, mentoring, um, there's a lot of self-imposed or self-limiting beliefs. Um, have you struggled with those and how have you debunked them? Or if you see a peer colleague dealing with some limiting beliefs, how do you help them get over it? Yeah. So myself, absolutely. Um, I wish you could talk to all of my coaches and my therapists. They would tell you, (laughs) they could write you a book about it. Um, Yeah. I speak like this as if this naturally happened. So there was a lot of pain and trauma uh, Mm -hmm. and processing and and healing that got me here. Um, I like to ask people questions. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I hear someone say something that's sort of a self-limiting belief, I say, is that true? Mm -hmm. What evidence do we have for that? Mm -hmm. What would be true if that were wrong? Um, Because what I find is that those beliefs are very emotional driven. Mm -hmm. Um, They're very unconscious. And so by asking questions, um, I found that you can shift it to a cognitive place. Um, Mm -hmm. So people are actually able to deconstruct it. And there's certainly a difference between sort of knowing something and like feeling and understanding it. Mm -hmm. But I think at least getting people to say like, this is true um, this is a technique that um, one of my coaches, Rajkumar Nyogi, um, used on me, and, and I'm grateful for it every day, which is every time we'd have a breakthrough like that, um, I would go on assignment and I would have to say that thing to myself every day. <laughs> and so that's one of the things that I tell people, and I do this every time I'm doing workshops with uh, underrepresented folks, is we always start with like an affirmation about how incredible and capable you are and that you can do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm someone, I have heavy Virgo energy. Um, like I'm very, I'm, I am my own biggest critic. I can be the cruelest to me of of anyone. Um, but I work on it, but I tell people, don't do that. Your brain is always listening. What you say about yourself is what you believe in. It will become true because that's where your energy is going. And so, uh, whenever I do workshop, the assignment everyone goes home with is we write our affirmation about our power and about our capability. Mm -hmm. And I say, I want you to say it to yourself in the mirror every morning when you brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. That's it. You say it until you believe it, and then you can do the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what I tell people is every time you run into that belief, um, write it down and then say, is that really true? What evidence do I have? What would be true if it was a lie? Mm-hmm. And then come up with a statement that is counter to that and say it to yourself until you believe it. Um, right? That is fantastic. Yes, um, absolutely. You can reprogram your brain. Like you really can do it. Um, and it's amazing the different choices you start to make once that becomes a practice. That is awesome. Tell me a little bit about um, your favorite success habit or hack. What do you do to make sure, like you, you touched a little bit where you said that when you always present something, you've already done your research and those types of things. But what would you say is your favorite success habit? Oh, that's good. Um, rest. Mm. Um, this is a recently learned thing. So I will acknowledge um, I was suffering with... Uh, 
absolutely debilitating case of burnout in, mm-hmm. in the middle of last year. Um, you know, I called my mom. Uh, I was at a previous role and they were awesome. They let me take a, a quarter long sabbatical mm-hmm. um, to think about sort of what I wanted to do next. And uh, I said, you know, mom, I've been, you know, four and a half years in this job and I haven't really taken a major vacation. And my mother, you know, in her loving and never pull punches kind of way says, mm-hmm. you haven't taken more than a week and a half off in 13 years. Mm. Go take a nap. <laughs> and um, it's not something I'm very naturally programmed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think those of us who, like I have a really deep like economic insecurity, like line running in my brain all the time, even mm-hmm. though it certainly doesn't describe my situation at present. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably comes from sort of my where I started out in the world, and mm-hmm. um, I thought I couldn't stop. That mm-hmm. like everything would pass me by if I rested. And having come out of that and recovered from that burnout, done a lot of really deep work, it is the biggest piece of advice I can give to anyone: is that like hustle culture is real. Our society is crumbling around us, and it feels mm-hmm. like the world is ending. Um, but I don't, I now work less hours per week than I did two years ago and I get twice as much done. Mm. Um, and, and I believe that's really because I truly allow myself to rest, um, basic things. Um, I don't have any notifications on my desktop and, um, my phone only gets notifications from a small group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so like my significant other, my parents, my best friends, mm-hmm. um, and then everyone at work knows that if they need me and it's like 911 emergency to call me. Mm. Um, so that's when it is minimizing distractions, um, which allows me to rest, allows me to turn my brain off. Um, I am rigorous about sleep hygiene. Um, mm-hmm. I try to never get less than seven hours of sleep per night. I will move meetings for mm-hmm. that. Um, the book, Why We Sleep, scared the crap out of me. And so now <laughs> I, I did that. So there's that for you. Um, and then personally, I've also reduced, you know, how much I drink by probably about 99% over the mm-hmm. last year and a half. Um, not because I had a problem, but because I realized how much of an impact that had on my physical and mental and emotional well-being that wasn't serving me. And I wasn't actually getting anything out of most of my drinking. Mm-hmm. So you know, occasionally I'll have a new beer or something, but I, I don't drink much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, which sounds a little preachy, but I, the, the book, The Naked Mind, really changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also just means that when I do focus, my brain works better. Mm. Um, so the, the sort of general for everyone, make your own choices, um, but be thoughtful about what you're eating and putting in your body if you have the ability to, mm-hmm. um, because it does make a big difference. Um, understanding that I know, you know, dietary choices are not open um, for everyone. <laughs> That's exceptional advice. And I do think um, the boundaries, the boundaries that you set for yourself, I think are brilliant. And I don't think people realize how detrimental it is when you don't, um, when you, when you don't let those boundaries or you let those boundaries down or you make some sort of exception and then it turns into the boundary just disappearing. Um, but I too am learning, I've learned very recently the, um, the compounding um, positive effect of sleep, of allowing yourself to rest. Um, I used to call myself a night owl and almost prided myself in, in <clears throat> staying up really late and doing work, but realizing that, yeah, I was a bit clouded. And when I did get a good night's rest, that I was so much more productive the next day. Um, and then thought, hmm, what if I did this? <laughs> what if I did this every day? Um, how, how much more work could I get done? So I think that was brilliant. And I think that is 
amazing advice for women thinking about that now, because I do think there's a danger in the virtual working. I mean, I've been working from home for a while now, and I feel like when you're in the office, there are some organic breaks that happen. People come to your desk or you get up to go get something to eat or, you know, you just, there's these natural kind of things that you follow with the environment. But when you're working from home, you've got to create those boundaries for yourself. It's, it's very difficult. It is. I have, I have a little bit of accountability. My, my current situation is a little funny. I just moved, so I don't have internet. So I'm um, working from my SO's home. Uh-huh. Um, but having another person I find is really helpful. So whether it's a friend or, you know, a parent or a partner or a kid, mm-hmm. um, I found that like having someone where I've made a commitment to them in the evening to like, oh, we're going to have dinner or do a crossword or now you know how uh, exciting my Wednesdays <laughs> are. Um, but that helps me because um, mm-hmm. personally I have a very, very hard time or it takes much more work for me to choose some to do something just for myself so Mm -hmm. if I can find an external motivation it doesn't actually it's not hard for I'm not making a choice because I'm like I made a commitment I have to put my computer down now Mm um uh, my new thing I am currently uh furnishing a house because like I said I just I just moved and I don't have anything um and I'm sure and I just uh my first thing I'm gonna buy is an alarm clock Uh, (laughs) so I want to stop using my cell phone uh, as an alarm and charge my cell phone in the other room overnight. So I think um, what I would say is find three ways that mm-hmm. you can like get yourself to turn off. So for me, it's notifications. Um, I don't have Netflix or a TV. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I, I set really aggressive, you know, sort of policies about when I shut my computer off and, and focus. Um, you know, with, with uh, my SO when we're out to dinner, uh, one of us will leave our phone at home. So we have one for like, you know, mm-hmm. GPS and whatever, uh, but we're very intentional about that. Uh, my girlfriends and I have a thing where if we're all out, out to like a meal, mm-hmm. we put our phones on the table Right. and you have to say at the beginning, like, oh, there could be a crisis at work. We're all mostly high level DNI practitioners. So like right. emergencies do happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is we put the phones on the table in a pile. So we're all accountable to being present in that moment. Um, but, you know, if your phone buzzes, you do get a gimme to check it and say, not emergency and put it back. Right. Um, but that for us has been, is just show up to tell people that you're trying to be accountable and ask the people around you to help. Don't, ex- this is a good advice for anything ever, actually, which is mm-hmm. don't expect to have to do everything by yourself. That's exceptional advice. Absolutely. None of us do. That's it's so exceptional. I think it's so important because there are many people who are these um, kind of rugged individualists who try to do it on their own. And um, sometimes it takes a village. You can't do it on your own. So you definitely need your community to do that. So in closing, um, you touched on it a little bit and I'm going to maybe put you on the spot, but I loved the uh, tangible advice you gave about affirmations. So in closing, I would love for you to leave our listeners with an affirmation you want them to repeat to themselves every day so that they can accelerate their success. I love this. Um, So this is what I tell people, Mm -hmm. um, which is you're brilliant, you're worthy, and the world needs what you're going to create. Beautiful. And with that, Aubrey, thank you so much for all of the time um, you've given us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. I think our listeners are going to love everything that you shared with them and the vulnerability that you shared and just sharing who you are and being uh, your 
your just authentic self. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com, where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode. And be sure to take the quiz on the website. Your score will tell you where you are, what helps you gain momentum, and what holds you back. You'll also get a free guide with cutting-edge career strategies. We'd also love to hear from you. Share your comments and topic suggestions on IamBeyondBarriers.com and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.